Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Hello, and welcome to our first full episode. We're going to start off by taking you back in time back to November. What do you think will be the biggest change resulting from the election? We're certainly looking at a dramatically changing landscape. Are you sipping champagne or taking opiate derivatives? (laughs) Well, once again, the Affordable Care Act. What's it going to do? The unknowns. We don't know what's around the corner. I think if uh, some of the uh, fees and taxes that were as a result of Obamacare get rolled back, potentially we could see some savings in our health care costs. The two provisions that worry people the most are supposed to stay, which is pre-existing condition and the students 19 to 26, and then losing the subsidies is going to mean a lot of people uninsured. We all are kind of concerned because uh, you know, the plans have some uh, investments that are abroad. So, you know, because of the president-elect may be able to, you know, bring a lot of those businesses back to the states and, you know, what will happen to the investments abroad. Those of us that administer the plans will just have to sit around and wait and see. But um, with anything of these changes, hopefully we get some direction early on and we can help our clients get through it. I have no clue at this point. We're going to have to ride that roller coaster together. So you've just heard what some of our International Foundation members had to say to us at our annual conference this past fall. It was held just days after the election. And as that last gentleman said, this last month has been quite a ride. You could even say benefit professionals across the country are in limbo. Limbo, come on. But yes, it is true. It is like the limbo stick is getting lowered with every new headline that comes out. Well, hopefully we can clear things up a little bit for you all. So let's get down to the first issue. Kelly, the most recent hot story in the news is that President Trump announced his pick for the Supreme Court vacancy. Can you tell us a little bit about Neil Gorsuch? Well, the first thing to comment on is that the vacancy in the Supreme Court exists because of the death of Justice Scalia back in February of 2016. The president has chosen Neil Gorsuch, who is a conservative judge, and that's no big surprise. He most recently served on the bench for the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. If he's approved, he is expected to vote pretty much the same way that Scalia did when he was in that position. Judge Gorsuch has been a Scalia fan, in fact, for a number of years. He's likely to bring an employer-friendly approach to cases that involve employee benefits and ERISA. One well-known benefits case he ruled on was the Hobby Lobby case from a few years ago. To refresh your memory, Hobby Lobby objected on religious grounds to the Affordable Care Act's requirement to offer contraceptive coverage without cost sharing. Judge Gorsuch ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby when the case came before the appeals court, 
And then that case eventually went to the Supreme Court and Hobby Lobby won. And just a few notes about potential Justice Gorsuch. Uh, he attended Columbia University, Harvard Law, and he has a PhD from Oxford University. He's currently 49 years old, which makes him the youngest Supreme Court nominee in the past 25 years. And he got his introduction into politics when his mother was selected by Ronald Reagan to head the EPA in 1981. So moving along into two other potential areas of overall impact in the benefits world, uh, near the end of January, uh, President Trump announced potential regulation freezes and regulation reductions going forward in his administration. Julie, do you want to talk about those? Sure. Thanks, Justin. Um, first of all, on the on the inauguration day on January 20th, um, the first thing we saw, the administration sent a memo to all agency heads and executive departments asking them to freeze all regulations that were still pending. So in other words, no new regulations could be sent to the Office of Management and Budget for review. And any that had been published or finalized but that weren't really in effect yet needed to be frozen uh, pending a review that could last at least 60 days. Now this isn't abnormal really. This happens uh, when administrations switch from one party to another. So for example, back uh, when President Obama's first administration went into play, his administration did the same thing too. So when this was going on, we were, when, after this first happened, we were looking at it to see what regulations that might impact. And we're trying to figure out whether it impacted the fiduciary rule or also known as the conflict of interest rule. And um, that one's kind of a funny little animal because it was uh, finalized last year, but the applicability date doesn't start until April of 2017. And so as a re result, we think that freeze did not apply to the fiduciary rule. There's new information on that issue, Julie. President Trump issued a memo saying that he wanted a legal and economic analysis of the fiduciary rule. So depending on what the Department of Labor comes up with after that review, the whole thing could be rescinded or it could be changed. And probably in the meantime, there'll be a delay. Okay, so stay tuned. You know, a lot of uh, companies that this impacted had already made changes to uh, their lines of business and, and their processes, what they do, to comply with the rule because it was supposed to go into effect in April of 2017. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, what happens with if that. They and stick with if that if or change their mind. Roll back, right, right. Uh, the other item that Justin had mentioned was the reduction in regulations. And at the end of January, President Trump signed an executive order order saying that for every new regulation that was going to be issued and introduced two existing regulations had to be cut. And that reminded me a little bit of my kind of rule of thumb that I don't always follow for my closet in that when I bring in a new piece of clothing, two pieces need to go out. Well, that's an ambitious goal. Yeah, I'm not always real faithful to that. <laughs> well, thank you, Julie. Uh, in the matter of complicated uh, executive law. It's good that uh, we have some metaphors to uh, help, yeah, exactly. help uh, communicate those points. It so. helps us understand <laughs> things. <laughs> so here at the International Foundation, we closely follow a number of agencies, uh, but the three main ones that we put most of our focus into are the Department of Labor, the Department of the Treasury, and the Department of Health and Human Services because they so closely uh, regulate employee benefits in the United States. And currently, all three of those departments are in transition. Uh, Kelly, can you talk about some of the new nominations that are occurring? Sure. 
I will first off just say it's been a bumpy ride so far with that. <laughs> For the Department of Labor, the nominee is Andrew Pudzer, and he's a fast food executive. He's had a number of delays. I think we're up to four now by uh, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. It's often just called the Senate Help Committee. They were supposed to have a hearing to grill him, if you will, on February 1st, but they delayed it to February 7th. Mm -hmm. But just recently it was announced that it's been postponed again to allow Mr. Pudzer to submit his paperwork to the committee and no new date is set so far. So that one's still to come. And did you say grill because he's a Hardee's executive? Or? Yeah, okay. you know, that's, oh, okay. that was a bad pun. Okay. Very bad groaner, pun. Groaner, groaner. <laughs> okay, um, and then the next one would be the Treasury Secretary and that's Steve Mnuchin. And his background is he's been a hedge fund manager as well as a former partner at Goldman Sachs. Uh, the Finance Senate Committee was tasked with uh, vetting him, and they were supposed to have voted on him on January 31st, but the Democrats had concerns about his company's role in the housing crisis in 2008, so they boycotted this meeting. And the very next day, the Senate Finance Committee Republicans held a meeting because the Democrats weren't showing up yet and voted to suspend the committee rules to vote on nominees without any Democrats present. So the D Democrats are upset and they're saying the move is in violation of longstanding rules which require one member of each party to, to be present at these meetings. Nonetheless, the GOP committee members voted in favor of nominating Mnuchin and now his nomination will take the final step and go to the Senate floor for a vote. So that's his story. Right. And then the third one is Dr. Tom Price, and he's been nominated to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services. His background is he was an orthopedic surgeon, so he's a medical doctor, and he was elected to the House of Representatives in 2005 by the state of Georgia. Like Steve Mnuchin, Dr. Price's nomination was supposed to be voted on by the Senate Finance Committee on the same day, January 31st. The Senate Democrats had some concerns about him because he had some personal investments in healthcare companies and they had some questions regarding that and wanted um, more time to evaluate that. But the Republicans held the meeting on February 1st and again suspended the rules and voted in favor to approve him and his final nomination vote will go to the Senate floor very soon. Now didn't uh, Dr. Price when he was a congressman, uh, well he still is, didn't he have a bill related to ACA, Kelly? Yes, he did. He um, is not a fan of ACA at all and he proposed an alternative plan for the country's health care system. To replace uh, ACA. Correct. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of ACA, get ready because the limbo stick is going down another notch. Ugh, again with the limbo music. So now what are we in for? We've got some movement there, some things that we're watching. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen with that. Uh, you'll all recall that during the uh, lead up to the elections in November, then nominee President Trump uh, 
came out and said he did not favor ACA at all, that he was going to repeal it on his first day in office. That was his message. Um, so not surprisingly, I guess, on Inauguration Day, President Trump did sign an executive order stating that his administration was going to do what they could to replace ACA. The order gave authority to the agencies uh, involved, like Treasury, HHS, and the like, to either waive or delay or defer or grant exemptions uh, on the various provisions of ACA, things that uh, had some sort of fiscal or financial ramifications. Anything that the order said would cause a burden, a financial burden on any state or on any person, on um, a patient, on a healthcare provider, on a health insurer, these rules could be delayed or deferred, waived, etc. So um, what this might mean is that possibly something uh, like the IRS may decide that they won't enforce the individual or the employer coverage mandate. Um, maybe the IRS won't uh, collect the medical device tax, one of those provisions that's been kind of contentious over the years. Um, but really, this has been a symbolic gesture. It said in the executive order itself that agencies still had to follow the rules of rulemaking. So they couldn't just immediately roll back the various rules, but they did have some leeway in waiving and delaying things. So what does this actually mean at this moment for plan sponsors? Do they have to do anything or change anything? It actually really means nothing right now for employers and plan sponsors. Um, things that employers are doing to comply with ACA, they need to continue to do. So the, the coverages that they have to, to uh, provide, for different types of essential health benefits, for example, the reporting requirements, all of that is still in effect right now. We're looking to see what uh, President Trump might be thinking for a new plan to replace ACA. We have a few clues. Um, he has come out and said that there are two ACA provisions he supports. One is the uh, coverage for adult dependents up to age 26, and the other is the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions. Uh, President Trump has said that he has some sort of plan in mind, uh, but he will not announce what that is until uh, Dr. Tom Price's nomination for HHS secretary is confirmed. Okay, well, that probably covers the White House. So down the street at the Capitol, the Congress is busy at work looking at ACA and what they want to do about it. And as of the end of January, there were 28 bills already introduced in the House and another six in the Senate to either repeal ACA or just repeal parts of it, like maybe the individual and employer coverage mandates or the Cadillac tax or various fees that have been imposed. Some of the bills introduced even suggest creating a public option instead of ACA as it is now. Most of the earlier bills that were introduced called for a repeal of the whole law right away and suggested addressing a replacement later. Then there were several Republicans who weighed in and suggested that the replacement and the repeal should actually happen at the same time. Now there's a third group emerging who would like to repair ACA and adopt a little more piecemeal replacement approach. Their bills target one area at a time and a couple examples would be like strengthening the verification process 
for those who claim to be eligible for special enrollment periods. Another example um, is a bill introduced that's seeking to broaden the permissible premium difference by age. Other people are calling for coverage for all, or some are wanting to continue the ban, as you mentioned before, Julie, on pre-existing conditions and coverage of adult dependents up to age 26. Kelly, you had mentioned permissible premium differences by age. Can you translate that for uh, a layman like me? Sure. What that refers to is the difference in the amount of premium charged for each individual that's being covered by insurance. And often the premiums differ based on the age of the individual. It's based on the presumption that if someone's older, they will incur more health care costs. And in the past, there certainly had been uh, these differentials allowed, but ACA narrowed those and didn't allow the gap to be quite as wide. Now the new bill that's introduced actually broadens or widens that differential that can exist by different age groups. So now insurance companies can charge even a larger amount for an older person than they could under ACA. That's correct. That's what the bill hopes to allow. Right. A couple Republicans in the Senate have even introduced a bill that allows states to just choose whether they want to keep ACA plans or come up with something else. And then it's kind of interesting to note that five of the bills introduced seek to expand health savings accounts, and they're often called HSAs. And these accounts actually encourage individuals to set aside money to cover healthcare costs. Now, HSAs have been something that uh, the Republicans have been proponents of for a while, isn't that right? Right. Um, for the past several years, I think most of the various replacement plans have included expanding HSAs. As I said, it's a portable account and an individual just sets aside money in there to pay for healthcare costs they may incur in the future. It's a way to get individuals to have a little more skin in the game, if you will, and be much more aware of how much healthcare costs. Of how, how much they're spending and make them a better healthcare consumer. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. Um, as kind of a final takeaway, what I'm hearing from both Julie and Kelly uh, is that there's a lot of potential moving parts in ACA, but for employer reporting purposes, it's still going to be business as usual. You still need to do your 1094 and your 1095 forms and those deadlines are approaching for 2017. So please be aware. That is correct. Yep. And if our listeners at home didn't catch all those details, all of that minutia, uh, the foundation has some great resources to preserve your sanity among all these ACA changes that we may potentially see. Keep track of the latest developments with our Future of ACA websites. It's free to all and available at ifebp.org slash ACA Central. And International Foundation members can get some ACA reporting help with two recently recorded webcasts, which are available at ifebp.org webcasts. Well, I think we've lowered that limbo stick as far as we can. Uh, can we move into something that's a little more concrete, uh, something that we might have some more answers about? Yeah, my back's had it. That's okay. all it can take. Okay. <laughs> at least for this episode, okay. anyway. <laughs> So we're going to move into some potential retirement developments that involve MEPRA and the PBGC. Those of you at home who are not from our multi-employer audience may be confused as to what MEPRA and PBGC are. 
Uh, I'm going to start with MEPRA. The Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014 was designed to provide some tools and some flexibility to keep troubled multi-employer defined benefit pension plans from becoming insolvent. So this allows some of those deeply troubled plans to um, suspend or reduce some of their future benefits within limits that are under strict guidelines. And uh, this includes some premium increases payable to the PBGC, which is the Pension Benefits Guarantee Corporation. That is a federal agency that was created by ERISA, or the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Yes, we are full of acronyms, yes. aren't we? We can't say full words in the employee benefits field. <laughs> and this government agency was created to protect pension benefits in private sector defined benefit plans. There's recently been some MEPRA movement with an iron workers local union in Cleveland. Uh, Julie, do you want to talk about that? Sure, happy to. Um, as Justin mentioned, one of the provisions of MEPRA was to allow plans that are in big trouble. They're called seriously troubled plans. They're in danger of going bankrupt and not being able to provide benefits in the future. Um, MEPRA allowed for them to apply to the federal government to be able to reduce the benefits that they're paying out now and in the future. And up until this point, there had been four plans that applied for these benefit reductions. All four were denied this option because the government said that their strategy for reducing benefits wasn't going to actually keep the plan from going bankrupt. But this past December, um, the Iron Workers Local 17 Pension Plan from Cleveland, Ohio, did receive an approval from the Treasury Department that their reduction plan could go forward. And after that, after they got that notification, it did um, kind of move into the next step that MEPRA spells out, and that's the, that participants would vote in favor of the reduction. So at the end of January, we did hear that the participants in that plan, and that's people who are retired and already receiving their monthly pension benefits, and workers who are currently working, still accruing or earning benefits in that plan, they had the chance to vote to see whether they approved or did not approve these reductions. Julie, why would a participant vote in favor of a reduction? That's a really good question, Kelly, and it's definitely a tough situation that all the participants are facing, especially the ones that are already getting their pension benefits. The problem is that Eventually, if the fund runs out of money, there will be no money for benefits. There is, as Justin mentioned, uh, the PBGC will step in to take over a plan that's run out of money and will provide a minimum level of benefits every month, but it's not a lot of money. Uh, with a situation under MAPRO where there can be benefit cuts, the cuts will make sure that the participant will get at least more money than what the PPGC would give them if the plan completely ran out of money. So if you can save the fund, keep it from going bankrupt, at least there will be some money coming in to the participants. It's a bad situation no matter what. Um, no easy answers and certainly um, not everyone agrees on, on the pros and cons of this. And so at the end of January, we did hear what happened with the vote. 
and it, there was a vote in favor. Um, 616 participants did vote in favor of the reduction, 320 against. There were 1,000 participants or more who did not vote at all, but under MEPRA, no vote equals a yes vote. According to the information that the plan filed when they were looking for cuts, 18% uh, of their participants do face reductions of 30 to 60%. But on a more positive note, uh, more than half of them, about 52% of participants, would not have any kind of benefit cut at all. And the fund had said that if they weren't able to make these reductions by May of 2025, their fund would be insolvent. But this way, if they can make these reductions and through a period all the way out to the year 2055, there's a really good chance their fund will still have money and still be able to pay their benefits. This situation with the Ironworkers Local 17 is very significant because it punctures another hole in the safety net that is ERISA. Its very name is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and it was passed in 1974 with the purpose being to make sure that retirees don't need to doubt or worry about their retirement income security. Once they start getting pension benefits, they should be able to just count on those the rest of their lives. But um, in this situation, the individuals most affected are already retired and we're counting on the benefits and the, these benefits will be likely be reduced. Another part of ERISA's safety net is the PBGC, but the PBGC is facing its own challenges, right Justin? There's some dark news about that. Uh, in November of 2016, the PBGC released their annual funding reports and uh, as part of their multi-employer program, uh, they reported deficits of $58.8 billion, which was a $6 billion increase from the previous year. This was caused primarily because of 11 new plans that are anticipated to be insolvent within the next 10 years. Uh, so as part of this projection report, the PBGC reiterated that their multi-employer program will likely run out of money by 2025 uh, if no changes are made. So. Uh, dark days ahead for that. Right, right. It's it's uh, an unfortunate situation, kind of as as multi-employer plans are facing some challenges. PBGC is too. But I would like to point out that there are certainly defined benefit plans that are in the multi-employer arena that are having challenges. But there are certainly a number of plans that are doing okay. There are um, more that are doing okay mm -hmm. than are having difficulties. Right. So right. It's important to remember that. Well, from all these changes in the health and pension uh, landscapes, uh, it's certainly going to be an interesting year for the benefits industry as a whole. And uh, we'll be digging into all those issues that we discussed today at the International Foundation's Washington Legislative Update, which takes place May 22nd to May 23rd in Washington, D.C. Join us there for what will surely be a lively discussion led by Washington insiders. And you can see all the details of the Washington Legislative Update at ifebp.org slash Washington. I wanted to thank Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud for their help with the podcast. And I'd also like to thank you for listening. This has been Talking Benefits, and we'll be back next month with more benefits news and hot topics. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved.
The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.